Welcome to the RSP cast, Matt Waldman, rookie scouting portfolio this week, the solo wide receiver cast of the 2022 receiver prospects. That means the wide receiver chapter for the RSP pre-draft is in the books, 280 plus pages sent off to my editing team of Tom, Christopher, Aaron, Joe, Aaron, Al, John and Gene, two errands spelled differently. And I want to thank you both yet again. Thank you all. There's not like two of you with eight personalities, but thank you all yet again for the time and effort you put into keeping me from misspelling words like Georgia so I can still live in this state, asking me what the hell I meant when something makes no sense because, you know, you're putting in the hours day and night. <sighs> or at least I, we all are at this point, you know, you guys and myself, you can tell I'm a little tired here. So it's going to be a fun little wired podcast before I go to sleep. Um, but you know, they do a great job asking me what the hell I meant when something makes no sense. And occasionally just interjecting price increase suggestions to me, Christopher, thank you very much. Um, but not this year, the RSP is still 2195 for the pre-draft and post-draft. It's available at mountwaldman.com or mountwaldmanrsp.com. And, uh, you know, usually after I do the wide receiver class, I usually hate wide receivers for a while. Don't want to look at them for at least another two to three months after I do this chapter. But this year, kind of different. I mean, while it was still a mountain of work to do with a lot of moving parts, as it usually is with wide receivers, I actually finished this chapter pretty excited to talk about the class. And I don't hate wide receivers this year. It's, it's kind of strange. Um, I think part of it is that this class, in my opinion, is a nutty one. It's not as celebrated as the group from last year, or maybe even the past two to three years. There are highly graded talents in this class, and it's potentially deeper this year than even last year. And now, last year had really great overall talent at the top, especially Jamar Chase and Jalen Waller, who were two of the three highest-graded guys I've looked at in quite a while, and Chase ever. Um, and then with kind of what I call the modern scoring era of the RSP, certainly two of the three highest grades. Um, so there's there was, there's some highly-graded talents in this class, maybe not as high as that, um, there's, it's potentially deeper than last year in terms of players who I think have potential starter upside, but the cliff drops off faster than the past two to three years. So there's not as many guys, I think, who have potential to make a team and develop into contributors if you're more of a draft nick than a fantasy guy. Most of all, I think the thing that really stands out about this class is that this is the most boom-bust group of players I've graded in a receiver class, which makes for a fascinating discussion. Um, I think this is a dangerous class in more than one sense of the word. Um, so this week, I'm going to share why as I review some of the players in my four, first four to five tiers. And while there will be a few players I specifically mentioned by exact tier, it's not going to be a lot. I'm going to give you a sense of what I think about many of these guys based on different categories of thought, kind of a 
you know, a, a brain dump on this, as you would say. Um, I graded, um, you know, 62 prospects for this pre-draft publication. We'll talk about several of them. And before we dive into it, I'm going to talk about what makes the position difficult to evaluate as an independent media scout and what I seek from the position. Um, so right off the bat, what makes wide receiver difficult to evaluate, whether you're in a, a media scout or even a team scout, is that there's more variation in grades at the wide receiver position than any position that's scouted. That variation happens because of different traits that teams and scouts and coaches value, um, basically due to the skill sets that may be in demand for an offense or an offensive system, the role that you're seeking that uh, you know seeking for your your team, whether it's a slot, a split end, a flanker, some sort of hybrid of the three, if not all three, whether you actually want to incorporate special teams ability in there because, again, maybe you're looking at late-round guys who can give you special teams opportunities as well as every-down opportunities or a mixture of, of different skills in that sense. Also, what kind of, you know, what's the strengths or weaknesses of the quarterback? Do you have a quarterback who has tremendous accuracy and a great arm who can squeeze the ball in? Well, you're going to value certain things more than you may value from a guy who puts more air under the ball and may not need, you know, may not be making the bullet type of throws, but he needs you to be able to, you know, work open and tight coverage and be able to, you know, make good jump backs and be able to, um, you know, run the back shoulder very well and win contested catches. Um, you know, have good positioning in the vertical game as opposed to having hard breaks and just breaking back on time and being there because you have great stop-start quickness and great weight drop. You know, so those are things that, that matter. All these things matter when scoring the position, which is why, you know, even back in the day when, you know, there are guys who you could look at who, you know, the guy that comes to mind for me, though fantasy people, may remember him in infamy, but Jeremy Gallon was a player that some teams had a second round grade for, some had an undrafted grade for, you know, and so it's it's that way every year with the with that position. Now the thing that makes it a little more difficult for media scouts is that we have to study everybody and build a board with everybody involved in it. Whereas teams get to filter more based on what their offense and quarterback and their depth chart looks like. And so they can kind of filter out as they as they go. They may watch everybody, but they may not watch everybody in the same level of detail and then really find what they're fine-tuning is in every player. They've got a select group that they're fine-tuning through to build their board. And another thing that's difficult about it is Demands for receivers continue to change as the offenses change. What was desirable in the past definitely isn't the same as it was in the present. When I was starting, you know, the big Des Bryant, Calvin Johnson, you know, type of receivers were in vogue. Smaller guys, guys under six foot two, 210 pounds it was considered maybe those guys weren't as desirable. They were secondary guys. They weren't, you know, you weren't going to be a top talent if you didn't have that size and, a, 
you know, to, to be able to play on the outside. And that changed, obviously, over the years. I mean, there, there were still always guys who were, quote-unquote, considered exceptions to the rule, but teams really did favor in the draft in the early round some of the bigger guys, even if the smaller guys outplayed them and eventually wound up being, you know, more desirable. So, you know, guys like Equinemius St. Brown, I remember when Mike Mayock had him as a top five receiver, and a lot of teams did, and a lot of um, and a lot of media scouts did. I didn't. I had him pretty low, but it was, you know, I remember him as being that kind of canary in the coal mine moment where the media scouts started to realize that um, that the NFL had started valuing um, valuing receivers differently by you know that the size thing and and certain traits that that used that teams used to be looking for had had made a flip you know and yes I mean when you can find a Julio Jones and AJ Brown a, um, a DK Metcalf you're going to value them highly but you can see that with guys like Stefan Diggs who was a fourth round option or Tyreek Hill who was a fourth round option due to other reasons off the field, but still, you know, you look at the size, you you look at that he was a running back for much of his career. Even so, he probably wouldn't have been a first-round guy, um, you know, based on his college resume on the field even. So, you know, there there were, there have been changes with players. Even Odell Beckham Jr., people wondered about because of his size. At least a lot of people who were getting into analytics and maybe didn't have a complete picture with their information. They had they had data without context. And as a result they, they had information but they didn't have knowledge. You know, and that's one of the things that, you know, has started to change as we acquire more data, context and knowledge, we start to realize too that, you know, that there are different fits for these players and and some things are changing. And one of the things that may be changing we're going to talk about is, again, the ever-decreasing size of wide receivers and their potential value. Is that going to continue you know, this year as maybe a test case? We're going to talk about that. And you know, the other thing is that your process just changes not only with all the things there, but what you just learn about the position. And for me... You know, I've learned so much about things like compensatory factors, which I talk about a lot, which is, you know, you may be short, but can you jump high? Are you ultra quick if you're short? You know, if you have certain difficulties with certain routes, well, where can you thrive? Where do you win? You know, and scout good scouting is not just about what the player doesn't do, but what he can do to help a team. You know, and we, you know, obviously as a media scout, it's different because you have to look at how he can help a number of different scenarios, but still be able to grade him against everybody else. And that's that's the most difficult part about all this is because I hate ranking wide receivers for that very reason, because where you would rank John Mechie as either a slot or maybe a flanker or a split end, depending on how you use them. I would say a slot or a flanker. 
how he stacks up as a slot may be different of how he steps up stacks up as a flanker and how you would you know if you were grading strictly slot players you might give more weight to certain traits and skills and concepts than you would to a split end or to a guy who's maybe a hybrid slot flanker you know and so trying to you know really weigh all that into one ranking you can't really do so that's one reason why I've kind of given a board where I split up big slot small slot small slot and things like that but it's still not weighted in the way where I'm really like ranking based on an archetype of role or archetype of size because you can have you know you can have a split end like Tyreek Hill and you can have a split end like Mike Williams and they're very vastly different players they're both good you know you may say one's better than the other based on what you've seen with stats right now but what teams are looking for you know it may be wiser to be able to say okay I want to look at big split ends versus small split ends and what makes one more valuable than the other because it's not a it's really good scouting isn't about telling me whether Mike Evans is better or worse than Tyree Kill. It's more about being able to look at a player who you draft outside the third, first, second, or third round, maybe the fourth, fifth, or sixth round, or as a UDFA, undrafted free agent, who you think could grow into a contributing role even though his you know traits or athletic ability doesn't meet certain standards that we traditionally look for from high round players it's finding those late round guys who can give you the reserve caliber play when your starters get hurt and not have a ton of drop off at least for a week or two you know before teams start to adjust to them can they execute the scheme well can they surprise and grow you know into into something more you know can they help you on special teams but also give you you know give you some continuity these are things that if when you start looking at you know the different archetypes of players that's where that becomes even more important than just you know which first round player is better than then, you know, which guys in the first three rounds are better than each other, you know, how you rank them. I mean, that's important, but the other stuff is just as important, even though it's a little more behind the scenes. So where I'm heading is I'm starting to head towards arc grading archetypes. You know, how do I, how do I put together some archetypes? And I've been thinking about this for two to three years, at least maybe even four or five. And I'm, I'm hoping to start building something with that over the next two to three years. Um, so what is it that I seek from the wide receiver position? I mean, I have, I think I have over 120 criteria points just from my checklist. I haven't looked lately or remembered how many there are, but I know it's over a hundred. Um, and so, you know, and that's available on my site, mattwaldmanrsp.com. I, 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 I tweet that out a lot in terms of what I look for and people can look at the criteria of the checklist, but I want to talk about about you know let's say about four things that I seek from the wide receiver position that I think have um, 
heightened importance um, in terms of the most weight of where I place on my 100-point scoring are on these four categories, separation, routes, catching, and then I would say probably transitions and vision. Maybe that's not as high um, up there, but I thought it was fun to be able to talk about a little bit as an underrated category. So let's break these down a little bit. First thing, separation. To me, separation is about press release skills, speed, acceleration, short area quickness, and leaping ability are all part of separation. Stacking opponents. So start with press release skills. You know, what I'm looking for is do they do they have a good stance so that they can get out of their stance efficiently without tipping off a defender of what their intentions are? Do they have footwork and and counter maneuvers with their hands? Do they have a, a good variation of skills that they can present? Um, and can they use them in combinations? You want to always win with your feet first. That's always what that's taught by wide receiver coaches is win with your feet first and then counter with your hands. So if you can win with your feet first and you don't need to use your hands, that's great. But you know, very rarely you're going to see a receiver in the NFL only win with his feet. You know, I mean, it'll happen on occasion, but it's not going to be something that every time he just wins with his feet. That's that's pretty rare. Um, so you're going to need to be able to counter defenders' hand, hands with your own, and you want to be able to use your feet first to set the defender up so that he's forced to use his hands, and then you can use your hands to counter with them. And you need to be able to do that with violence. You need to be able to have some sort of variation with your movement so that it's not all one speed. It can't all be slow, can't all be fast. You need to have that blend of patience and suddenness with your feet and then be violent with your hands to, to and be precise with your hands and feet so that you can be able to set up the angles you need and, and set up the next move. Because if you're too if you're too dynamic with your movement and are off balance, you might not be able to use your hands precisely if you're off balance with your feet. Um, and at the same time, um, you, you know your hands need to be precise so that you you can get clean of a defender. And you need to be able to do these things in different variations of combinations so that you're not predictable, so that a defender doesn't look at your split, doesn't look at the, the alignments and go, I know this guy's going to be running a corner route, so therefore I need, and I know that he likes to use a shed or he likes to use a different type of release, you know, a too quick or a, you know, a double up in these situations. You know, you want to be able to vary it enough, especially at the NFL level where Guys are going to study you and they're going to think that they know what maneuvers you like to use with specific routes or specific alignments or splits. So that's very important. Um, and, and the press game is something that, you know, it's kind of like quarterbacks reading defenses. You can get a sense of it at the college level of what they do. Um, but, you know, 
how well they play that mental game against cornerbacks, you only get a taste of that because they're going to get to a higher level of play in the NFL where they're going to have to acclimate all over again. So what you really want to see is, again, the variation, the violence, the precision, the play and pace. If you can see enough of that, you can see that they're headed in the right direction. Whether or not they can play the poker game, you know, play poker well with the defensive back, you know, that's at a higher level in the NFL. Traits with the athletic ability. Speed obviously is, you know, if there's a position where speed is going to have importance, it certainly is wide receiver, but even that can be overrated as we've seen. You know, if you're looking at a slot receiver or a hybrid slot flanker or even certain um, split ends who are used because of their height and other uh, qualities, Speed can be overrated, especially if it's if you're a player who has a lot of top-end speed, but you're slow to accelerate, or you're not very quick, or you play slower because your techniques aren't good. So, you know, and I see this every year. You know, every year we get guys who are picked for their speed, but then it's the... The, the slower guys that outplay them, the Juju Smith-Schusters, the Michael Thomases, you know, they, they, out, they often out, Cooper Cups outperform a lot of these speedsters who, who wind up, you know, short-circuiting the league because they're a one-trick pony and they don't develop any further, you know. So speed can be very important, but it's, to me, it's more icing on the cake in most cases, than the cake itself. To me, the, the, the real cake are two things. Acceleration, short area quickness. Short area quickness has to be strong when you're making breaks, when you're releasing from the line of scrimmage, and then after the catch to be able to make the man miss. So I just named three phases of, of basically route running receiving that are very important that require short area quickness and then acceleration into your stem because your initial cell acceleration if it's strong and you combine it with short area quickness to get a man off balance the defender's going to re overreact even if he thinks he knows what's coming if your acceleration and short area quickness can put him on his heels and make him turn his hips because he's afraid you're going to beat him deep and you can and you can say, well, what if he has, you know, what if what if he doesn't have top end speed? Well, Cooper Cup doesn't have top end speed, but he has elite quickness and acceleration. And when you can stack somebody, which is the third thing that I, third part of the separation category that I look at, when you can get and cut off the defender and put your back to him in the during the stem before the break, you have now forced the defender to react to everything else you're going to do because you're going to be able to dictate the terms. And if you and if he doesn't want you to dictate the terms, then it means he's going to have to run through you and commit a foul for, you, for him to have any shot because once you've stacked him, you're in control. So that's what they're afraid of. They're more afraid of getting stacked, even if they know it or not, than they are of you just having speed. So, you know, when you have that acceleration and short quickness, to get that early separation and then stack and control it, 
it's over. And so those are things I'm looking for out of separation. You know, and my I have tiers that I use of speed, 20 shuttle time, excel, you know, um, three cone drills, and then vertical leap. You know, vertical leap, broad jump certainly important too. Vertical leap, because if you're a slow, tall, slower, taller receiver with good acceleration and some short area quickness or some combination of those short area explosive traits, your ability to leap and win, you know, above the rim is very important, you know. Or if you're a short receiver who has all the, the speed, you know, but, you, you know, you want to use them outside, the leaping ability also can be a factor because separation isn't just in a straight line downfield. It's also, you know, from the ground up. It's also about using your routes well to be able to buy back space horizontally late. Can you re-accelerate or can you accelerate late in your route after you've already beaten someone? You have that extra gear to accelerate to the ball. These are all some interesting factors that I like that, you know, I like to know. And I know scouts look at it as well. Routes. You know, four basic things I, I would say that the categories list into stems, setups, breaks, and really all three of those things with man or those three things with zone coverage. So man coverage, zone coverage with all these things, stems, setups, and breaks. You know, stems is, if you're not familiar with the term, stems are the part of the route after the release, before the break. And that's the part where you're building up speed. It's, it's a part where you're trying to manipulate the defender the most to get him thinking that you're either going to go deep when you're actually going to break short or that you're going to break short when you're actually going to go deep, or whether you're thinking where it looks like you might be heading outside when you're actually going to break inside, you know, or that they think that, you know, so it's setting up double moves, it's setting up single moves and just telling a story. And you got to be efficient with it while also forcing the defender to move a little bit in the wrong direction. You're basically creating leverage, favorable leverage for yourself as a receiver. And this is about pacing, body alignment, where your eyes are, um, footwork, you know, that's all there. And part of the stem is those things, the setup, you know, the setup there where you get the defender thinking you're about to make a break in a direction when that's not actually your break. Because, you know, the best wide receivers tell a story, you know, and the story is a suspenseful one. And as you know, good suspense or good horror is, or any good story, is where the, they get you believing, the storyteller gets you believing that the plot's going to go in one direction and you just think that's exactly what's going to happen. Like, you're sold on that and then there's a twist that completely changes it. So you... Th- you know, you, they give you the believability, the ability to kind of suspend disbelief that things are heading in the direction that they are. And then they change it up on you. You know, just kind of how life is. You know, the whole idea of that, you, you know, you make plans and God laughs or the universe laughs or however you want to put it, you know, and you say that's life. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of route running in a sense. You want, you want the... You want the defender 
to believe in what you're selling them so that they think they're guessing correctly what you're doing, that they've figured you out when in fact you've actually baited them. So that's the setup. Brakes, you know, you know, there's speed brakes, there's hard brakes, there's different types of hard brakes. There's, you know, drop and pop, there's a three step, there's five steps, there's speed brakes, um, you know, angled brakes, you know, how you set those up in terms of what your feet are supposed to do, where your toes are supposed to be pointed, how your hips and weight are supposed to drop, you know, whether you whether you punch your arm back to get your your shoulders around so that you can be sudden with your turn, you know, where your head and eyes should be, whether you whether you are, you know, accelerating out of your brake, you know, these are all factors and more that go into route running. And there are some players who are excellent receivers who just don't make good hard breaks. And that means that where they fit in an offense is different than from guys who can fully drop their weight after running 15, 20 yards downfield at top speed and can come to a stop, you know, like that. Then, you know, all these things with man versus zone because you can be a good man-to-man player, being able to manipulate these guys and do that type of work. But when it's zone, maybe you don't read the zone well. So when you're reading zone as a wide receiver, you have to be on the same page with your quarterback. You guys have to see the same things and know where to break. You know, so the when the you know you can't you don't get to talk about it much. It's basically you have to talk about it before the game, and you have to study it before the game. So when you get up there and you look at a quarter's coverage, or you look at a safety rotation, or a linebacker dropping, you know that that you know that that fin route that you were running may now be a slant, or that the that the dig route you were running is now going to be a post or a comeback. You know, these are things that you have to see just before the snap. And oftentimes within the first two to three steps after the snap, when because defenses disguise their coverage and you have to be on the same page as your quarterback, the quarterback has to know that you see the same things they do and make that adjustment, which is why sometimes interceptions aren't really quarterback interceptions but actually wide receiver um interceptions because the receiver didn't make the right adjustment and that's a lot of zone play and also whether you settle in to a spot or whether you keep running downfield when you show your eyes sometimes interceptions happen because wide receivers show their eyes too early and continue running and the quarterback thought because you showed your eyes now you're expecting the ball and then he's throwing the ball into a coveraged, covered area that you shouldn't have turned your eyes to him to because it's your job as the receiver to signal the quarterback that, that the area is open and you're ready for the ball. Especially if the quarterback's coming off his second read and pressure's coming and he doesn't have the time to make that check to be sure that you turned your eyes correctly. you know. So route's very important. Catching, listen, you know, that's where everybody looks, but, you know, hands position. I talk about hands position all the time. You know, we know I talk about finger catching with your fingertips rather than your palms because your fingertips slow the the spin of the ball more effectively than your palms do. Your palms, the ball rebounds off faster. 
um, and more violently and less predictably than it does with a soft rebound if it comes off of your fingertips because it's you've slowed some of the spin with your fingertips and it gives you better second chance opportunities if you don't just stop the spin immediately. And the way you do that too is get your fingertips together whether it's your thumb and fingertips together in that diamond position with your fingertips up when you're attacking high targets, low targets with your fingertips together and your hands out so that you're catching the ball with your pinkies together and your thumbs out on lower passes and knowing when you use high and low. You know, at the numbers, you see receivers get confused at the numbers with what to do and sometimes they end up mixing the positions and trying to clap onto the ball. And when you clap onto the ball, you wind up more likely um, striking the ball with your palms than you do your fingertips because it's harder to have your fingertips together to meet the ball. When you have your fingers in a webbing like the diamond position or, or the pinkies together position, the ball strikes your fingertips. It meets your fingertips. When you try and strike your fingertips to the ball, you wind up striking your palms to the ball or you miss the ball completely because you're timing your hands meeting the ball and just look at a little kid learning how to catch. Go find some go find some toddler or some kid under seven who's learning how to catch the, uh, a ball. It can be one of those big, you know, rubber balls with air on in it that just float around and you throw it to them and they clap their hands. The ball goes between their hands most of the time or strikes their palms and goes up in the air or hits them on the forehead, you know. And then you see kids, you know, you know, they get frustrated because they're clapping like that. And a lot of receivers, even at the pro level, you'll see them occasionally clapping the football. And when they drop the ball, sure enough, more often than not, it's because they're clapping. So the hands position is important. Tracking is important. You know, when you... Tracking is... Not just tracking it over your shoulder or directly over your head, but it's also about knowing if the ball is high enough in trajectory that you need to leave your feet or know that you can keep your feet on the ground. And as Russ Landy talked about in our Scout Talk episodes for the past couple of years, and we're going to reprise these probably after I get the RSP done, is that when you leave your feet for a target that you didn't need to, that shows a lack of confidence in your tracking ability. And when that happens, it turns out, you know, if you're jumping for a ball at chest level, um, that can disrupt your hands position. And it can cause you to second guess your hand position or just not have your hands in an optimal position relative to where the ball arrives and make a harder catch. And when it's tight coverage when you're doing that, that's a problem. It also hurts you when you're at the boundary and a defender can hit you while you're airborne and you can't get your feet in bounds. It can hurt you when you're trying to transition downfield because you're in, you got coverage coming downhill at you or in, in tight pursuit and you leave your feet and now you're airborne and it takes more time for you to, to reach the ground and you can't avoid the defender and you wind up taking more contact than you should have. So those are some reasons. Body position is very important, you know, especially with these back shoulder fades and underthrown balls that we see either intentionally or unintentionally. And part of that is, is that watch Jabbar chase with body positioning on back shoulder fades or underthrown balls. And what you'll see is a receiver who jumps straight up into the air. He doesn't lean backwards. 
Well, you see a lot of tall guys who have that quote-unquote rebounding ability who are supposed to be good at this, you know, but they jump backwards and it looks like they're doing a, you know, like a backwards dive off of a diving board to catch the ball. And when that happens, the defender is usually at their back and the defender has access to their chest and hands and helmet to be able to block their view or knock the ball free. Because even though their back is to the defender, they've leaned back so far that now their chest is open to the guy. And why does that happen? It's because they're not confident in jumping early enough. They need to be able to jump a step or two earlier so that when they go straight up into the air, they're catching the ball at a higher point. And then when the, and so what ends up happening is that they jump late and then the ball's arriving beyond them and they have to lean back for the ball because they weren't confident that they were able to reach the ball if they jump a step or two earlier. So it's about timing and tracking and being comfortable with that timing so that you can jump straight up in, in the air. When you do that, your back's truly to the defender. They can't work through you to the ball without committing a penalty. And that's what's good body positioning there. So part of that or torquing your body through the catch point so that you're catching the ball where it arrives if the defender is in front of you at your at your inside hip and you can continue turning away from the man with your momentum at the right time. So things like that, you know, are, are looked at. Focus, obviously, can you make catches after contact? You know, hits to your chest, hits to your back, hard hits, swats to your, you know, to your frame, or just tight coverage that's playing tight and grabbing you, but that's not necessarily hard contact. Those are all things that, that I look at and are very important because if you can't catch after contact or in the in the face of contact, it really does limit your upside as to become a starter. And then the last thing I'll talk about is transitions and vision. Transitions are when how you get downfield with the ball. As soon as you make the catch, do you immediately turn downhill and run? I'm not talking about at an angle, but straight downhill, north-south. You get north-south. That's a point that's constantly coached. But it's something that some of the most athletic ball carriers at receiver don't do because they get used to being so dominant at the high school and college level against most teams that they face that they, they'll take their time a little more or veer outside because they know they have the speed and quickness to win. But in the NFL, they don't, not as often at least. And what ends up happening is that they look for the home run play that they were getting more consistently in high school and college, and they're not able to get there. And they end up losing more yards than they gained when they should have just taken the north-south play. But they go north-south initially, see a linebacker or a safety or a cornerback in front of them, and try and bounce it or cut back and wind up doing it in more traffic and losing more yards than what they would have actually gained. Oftentimes giving up a first down or a potential first down in a third down situation, you know, and, and then forcing the team to punt. So these are things that, you know, you, you want to look at in terms of that decision-making there. So with the next 20, 25 minutes, maybe more if I, if I don't run out of gas here, let's talk about this class and why it's a high-risk reward group. The first thing is just 
the the injury concerns with some of the the top names in the first couple of tiers. You know, um, you know, I have four tiers of players that I think are draftable, which is I think about 37, 38 players. I think there's maybe 25 to 30 players who I think have a realistic shot of becoming contributors with potential fantasy value from one year to the next. As we know, they're very, it's very rare that players are consistently fantasy options in the top 12, top 24 year after year after year. I've done a study on that. I put that in the RSP. If you want to learn about that, you can learn, you can check that out there at mattwaldmanrsp.com when you get the RSP in the wide receiver chapter. But there are some, you know, there's some injury concerns with some of the top two tier guys. George Pickens, ACL, coming back from an ACL tear. He's probably not fully back yet after, you know, coming back early. And you got to like the fact that he worked hard to get back, but there's some, you know, questions about his coachability, it sounds like. At least I'm hearing from the rumor mill that we're seeing in the media and we're seeing from people on the inside. You know, take it with a grain of salt for what you will, but there's, you know, the ACL tear and the fact that he's missed enough time and played in an offense that likes to run the ball a lot. You know, how refined is he really? You know, I would say he has the potential to be one of the top players in this at this class, but there's questions about his refinement and whether he'll get there, you know. Then we've got, you know, a guy like Garrett Wilson. Well, not Garrett Wilson, excuse me. You know, another injury concern would be, um, excuse me, I meant Williams. Jamison Williams, you know, Jamison Williams and Mechie. In January, Wilson went down with an ACL tear, Mechie with an ACL tear. They're redshirt players. We know that this year. They're very, it's very unlikely that they're going to play more than a few games. Um, and if they even play, it's probably going to be, you're not going to see them at full speed. You know, so you're going you're gonna to have to see them sit a year and, you know, knock off some rust. And so that's going to be, you know, if you pick them, you're knowing that. So their draft value is probably a little lower as a result of that. Then you've got a guy like, um, you know, who's a good example here, um, Justin Ross. You know, Justin Ross with the, he had, you know, he was a top guy early in his career, at least based on what the, the perception of his draft capital would be. And he had a, um, you know, spinal, cervical spinal fusion surgery due to a congenital issue. And while that was corrected and saved his career, the dude had to, lost a ton of weight after recovery or during recovery. And then to re, had to retrain his body to get back to football condition. And then after that, fifth metatarsal stress fracture that he played on all season and had to get surgery and take another six to eight weeks likely to recover from that and then train for the combine. So, you know, the injury concerns itself 
are probably things that teams are going to be wondering about. And they get nervous about the neck spinal stuff, even if it saved his career and he played a full year and played injured and still, you know, and still was productive. He may not have been as productive as other people wanted him to be. And that and that's going to impact his draft status. But we'll talk more about that later. No, but injury concerns are part of it. Um, there's players who I think may be more dependent on scheme in terms of that boom-bust upside. You know, guys who they graded well, but where they can their potential to express their their the, their ceiling and become, you know, year in, year out fantasy starters and not just contributors might have to do with the scheme they're in and whether or not they can be exploited to their fullest talents. Traylon Burks, to me, is one of those guys. I know that people see him as a top three player, um, and he's certainly in my top two tiers. You know, he's a he's certainly a guy who could become what people are saying. But right now, if you're just grade, if you're grading him as a schemed up talent, and say we can get him in Miami, and Miami's gotten Alec Ingold, they've gotten the run game together, they've got themselves, you know. Uh, you know, they, they're going to get themselves a good blocking tight end. They're going to have a, you know, they're going to have a good tackle. If they can get remotely the caliber of tight end, tackle, fullback that McDaniel had in San Francisco, you put Burks in maybe that Debo Samuel, Cordero Patterson-like role, and maybe you'll get, close to what those guys could offer in this scheme. But it's no guarantee that they're going to get Traylon Burks. And it's no guarantee that their offense is going to gel with the and have the caliber of personnel that the 49ers do, even though they're trying to build it. And it certainly looks like they're heading in a positive direction. But still, Burks... If he doesn't land in that situation or he's not someone that has the benefit of, of the talents around him, you still look at his game as a receiver stacked up against all the possible schemes he could be in, and you think, well, he's, you know, he doesn't have great press release skills at this point. In fact, I'd say they're bad. I know that, you know, Matt um Matt Bowen said he has the the potential to become good at press release. And I would agree with that. He has the athletic ability to become good at press release skills. And he has some footwork and hand works that, that will work well. But there's other situations that I'll talk about that I write about in the RSP that he has no clue. And he gets, when he has to be more finesse than power, he, he gets jammed up. And it forces his quarterback off the read where Burks is the guy that he wants to go to. And that's, you know, and when you're not open as your first read in a situation where it's a quick hitting play, that does a lot of damage to your offense. So, you know, there's that, you know. And there's also just timing and more use with the hands. And, you know, so there's things with that that are a part of an issue. Also, how he goes up to attack the ball. There's some, he's gotten better with that, but still some things there. Breaks. What kind of routes is, you know, are you going to be good at? 
you know, there's some there's some questions there. Um, other guys that that are interesting with this boom bust outlook: um, Calvin Austin, Khalil Pimpleton, Wandale Robinson. Those three guys. Ben Fennell. Give Ben Fennell some a shout out and some credit to him. The NFL.com um, researcher, Greg Cosell Jr. Maybe that's what we should start calling him. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want Ben to feel like that he's a junior to anybody, but you know, he's certainly a guy who studies a lot of tape. He works at NFL Films, like Greg, and uh, does a lot of draft work nowadays. And he made a good comparison with um, Wandale Robinson, I believe, or it was Calvin Austin, one of the two, to Isaiah McKenzie. I think it was Calvin Austin. And you know, if you look at you know how teams and probably scouts in the media regard some of these players who are in the 5758 five, range 170 to 175 pounds the those are players that are considered worrisome dangerous in terms of danger to themselves playing at the pro level that's what a lot of that's what a lot of teams used to think do they t- still think that there's some my thoughts that they probably do, um, at least in some corners, based on guys I know who are media scouts who drop these labels, and I know that they they are part of maybe a more they have contacts in more conservative scouting quarters, you know. But Isaiah McKenzie seems like a test case for a player who's about to earn or has earned the uh, starting slot role in Buffalo and played well enough to get that and they could let Cole Beasley go and rewarded him with another contract. And he was an early pick by John Elway with the Broncos. It just didn't work out for him. And they used him, thought of him more as a returner who possibly could be a slot guy. Well, Austin, Pimpleton, and Robinson are all guys who definitely can function in the return game. You know, they... They've got that that suddenness, that explosion, that long speed, vision, moves upon moves, and efficiently use them, creatively use them. Um, but they also, they're small. Can they hold up as slot receivers? That's what a lot of teams you're gonna we're gonna see whether teams buy into it or not. With more spread systems, I think teams are open to it now you know the fact that that the fields spread out a little bit more these guys can be assets without taking as much punishment um also with the the jet sweeps and the draw plays and the use with them in the backfield i think you know austin to me is the one with the most upside as a outside receiver i don't know if he's going to get that chance but with a i think what he has maybe like a you know, uh, what what is his vertical leap? Let me look it up real quick because I don't remember right offhand. But, uh, yeah, he's got a 39-inch vertical leap, you know, and with his ability to win the ball at the college level the way he did as an outside receiver, teams may not be drafting him wanting to rely on that, but it would be a layer that I'd want to try out in a camp and see if, he does hold up and show that skill 
against some of my top cornerbacks in practice because maybe I can then start to use him in that capacity. And if he has success, I might have found a player who I can expand the offense with what he does, both inside and outside. And I think Austin might have that potential to his game, even though he's 5'8", 170 pounds. You know, I mean, Deshaun Jackson was 168 pounds. And he's one of those guys who's been the exception to the rule of having multiple top 12 and top 24 seasons year after year before he got older and the injuries hit. Pimpleton might be the my favorite of the three because he's a fantastic runner. And there is some... I don't say this lightly. There's some Barry Sanders-esque movement from this guy. And I, I'm i not one who usually says that kind of thing about even running backs. But he has some of that. He's not Barry Sanders. But he has some of that movement skill that is just unbelievable. And he can do it in traffic. He's got great vision in the open field. He is an All-American, I believe he's an All-American punt returner. He certainly was a, a recognized um, punt returner given accolades um, by coaches. And he, I think he led, he either led the MAC or he led NCAA in punt return average at least one year. And this is a guy who can go up and win the ball too. So... Pimpleton is one to watch. New England worked him out in the snow last weekend for his pro day. Sudden athlete. Wouldn't be surprised if they say, maybe he can give us a little bit of a lighter, faster, um, more downfield dynamic Danny Woodhead type of vibe. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I would bet if a team drafts him, it would be New England but we'll see. Or it would be Josh McDaniels in Oakland. We'll see. Um, Wandale Robinson is probably the most celebrated of the three, the most well-known. Certainly up there in terms of the athletic ability. I don't think he has quite the receiving acumen in terms of contested plays where you can unlock him as an outside receiver the way that you might be able to unlock Austin or Pimpleton or unlock him as a runner the way you might be able to unlock Pimpleton this game. But he certainly, I think I think he's also, if Austin and Pimpleton can make it at, at least as slot receivers, so can Robinson. All right, so another guy that I think is high risk, high reward, because we've talked about the injury guys, Pickens, Wilson, Mechie, Ross, you know, to a certain degree. Burks, Austin, Pimpleton, and Robinson in terms of maybe they're a little more scheme dependent. And what if this, what if teams just go, oh yeah, well, this Debo Samuel, Cordero Patterson thing was nice, but we're gonna, it's going to go out like the Wildcat. We're going we're gonna to fix that. We're going to address that. And now you've got a guy like Burks who has an incomplete game and he's going to have to complete it. I still think if Burks, if Burks doesn't land in this scheme, he could still give you what Kenny Galladay gave you in Detroit, um, which is can be wide receiver two value if surrounded by good talent around him to buffer him and give him matchups that 
where he can dominate with his size as opposed to his route running. David Bell. To me, this is a he's the ultimate boom bust. He might be the ultimate boom bust player at the wide receiver class because his athletic ability is reserve level, maybe commit low end committee level at best. You know, a guy that you put in as a situational player just based on athletic ability. But if you look at his route skills, his release skills, his running, how he defeats angles, how well he catches the ball, his blocking. This is a football player with versatility, smarts, and just exceptional skill. So it's skill versus athletic ability in a sense. You know, in the same way that... you know, Jarvis Landry was uh, to a degree this way. You know, he wasn't, he didn't have good acceleration, didn't have good speed. In fact, Bell and Jarvis Landry are very kind of similar in tier for, in these two areas. Bell's actually quicker with short area quickness than Landry was. Um, but they were both slow in, in acceleration and speed. So getting downhill on the outside and getting separation on the outside, unlikely. Um, maybe as an inside receiver with his size and route running, maybe, you know. But it's going to be fascinating because if he if he goes to a team where they use him like a Landry or an Anquan Bolden or a Larry Fitzgerald, an aging Larry Fitzgerald, you know, not the last two years of late night Larry, but the the renaissance years when they put him first put him in the slot bell might become a very productive player and i think that that's possible i think he's i think he's the most skilled wide receiver in this class if you were to take athletic ability out of the equation but you can't do that you have to factor both so he's going to be a boom bust prospect you know are you going to gamble are you going to gamble against him and say not he's not athletic enough or are you going to gamble for him and say he's his skills going to compensate enough that he's going to be productive me i'd get i i tend to err on the skills you know that all right then there's the players who have the hidden trap doors to their game okay you know one of those guys Garrett Wilson, certainly, you know, he's in my top tier, okay? He's in my top tier. He could have been, he, but he's not He's not my number one receiver. And I don't think he could have been, not with this, the, the lapses he has. As, you know, first, just clapping on the ball. I talked about that. He does that more often than he should. He's made some really great highlight reel catches, some clutch catches even, um, and he didn't clap the ball. So you know that he's capable of making catches without, you know, with this lapse. So he's graded high enough that he's in my top tier. But the clutch catches, the difficult plays, I've seen him drop more than he's caught because of this issue. So he's going to have to address it. 
I think he can, but it may be something that with a lot of players who have this issue, it takes them dropping the ball enough that they get criticism and and they let their team down in the NFL and then they focus on it in the offseason. So you could see, you know, if there's a hidden trap door, the hidden trap door for Wilson is his hands and a rough start that way. Another hidden trap door for Wilson <laughs> is that while he has excellent movement and he's a terrific route runner, part of routes is releases. And I found that patient cornerbacks who wait out the first two moves that he gives during his release work tend to slow him down and neutralize him. And I think that there's he has to become a little better with how he delivers those initial moves. And if he does that, then I think he'll be he can be a top tier, he can be an elite receiver in the league. But that's that's another hidden trap door. Is he our patient cornerback's gonna be able to get the best of him? Another guy who has a hidden trap door who I love is Khalil Shakir, Boise State. This guy, he's a Pittsburgh Steeler wide receiver. I mean, that's written all over him, even if he's not drafted by the Steelers. He's got that Emmanuel Sanders, Antonio Brown, Deontay Johnson vibe. Heinz Ward a little bit, you know, when Heinz Ward was a little faster. Tough, intense, Highlight reel grabs, skilled after the catch, good route runner who's going to get better at it, tracking ability, really good player, up-and-coming player. I think he's he's only going to get better. But again, claps on the ball at times, hits the ball with his palms sometimes at, at times. And I think, again, like Deontay Johnson, who early in his career looked pretty promising, looked good, and then you saw him have a number of drops. And then this year, while he was taken off, he still had a lot of drops. This year he he cut those drops down because he finally started to address his game by looking at the fundamentals with his hands technique and having a routine so that he could stay sharp. And I think Shakir could go in that same direction where maybe he has some initial success, thinks he's doing well, starts to face a higher difficulty of defender coverage situation, game plan, and starts to drop the ball more often because he's targeted more, he's leaned on more, and the technique starts to fail him more often. So, you know, if he can address it early, I think he could be he could be a, a borderline elite producer in the league meaning, you know, top 12, top 15, you know, maybe even some years where he could be top five, depending on where he goes and how high he can take his height. You know, Pickens, we've talked about, he's another one. Body positioning, hand positioning, um, you know, certain things with releases. I, I like his game a lot. I see the high upside, but where he's strongest is also kind of where he's weakest. I know that sounds kind of like contradictory to say, but what he's known best for are the the adjustments to the ball. He has great hand-eye coordination. He has great skill at being able to move his body where he wants to. 
but he has to know when and how to move his body in the most efficient ways to make the most of those skills. And he doesn't quite have that technique down yet in terms of hand position and body positioning. And I think he'll get more exposed in the NFL if he doesn't work at it. Mechie also has a clapping problem and also some issues with making catches against tight contact and coverage. And as a guy who's a, got a ruggedness to his game after the catch and speed and looks like he could be a dynamic slot receiver with some um, vertical threats, when he gets healthy, is he going to have worked at his game enough to address this? Or is this going to be a part that, you know, he thinks he's just going to fix in practice and not with extra practice? Because this is where a lot of players go wrong there. Romeo Dubs, you know, he's maybe not as high up on my board as some of these guys, um, but he could transcend his, loca- his draft spot to become a starter because the athletic ability is there. The, the route running is promising. The releases are promising. But it's the positioning and catch point, once again, like Pickens. Um, can he do that? Because he does everything right up to that point. And then he can be inconsistent there, and he has drops because they're unforced errors that he created. If he can fix that, he has starter upside. So again, a lot of players with that kind of boom bust, if they can't do this, forget it. If they can, heights, you know, and I don't think, and this has a little bit less of a, are they going to fall in between kind of thing. Hidden value guys. Think about this with Justin Ross. Nick Martin, who is a, an analyst that you'll see a lot on Twitter, who covers, I think, the Steelers a fair bit. He wrote me privately, and Nick, I'm, I'm calling you out here. I'm sorry if I revealed anything that was uh, confidential, but I don't think it really is. So, um, But if I do, apologies in advance. Um, you know, Nick wrote me and s- saw my analysis on Ross and how I liked him and thought he could still very good. And, and I mentioned on Twitter, I don't see anything different from him this year. Um, as an individual, what I see different from him is that he had a different quarterback who wasn't as skilled, and that was about it. And Nick said to me, he goes, I think Justin Ross could be the Nick Chubb of this of the wide receiver class, meaning started off great, looked like a world beater, got had a difficult injury, missed a year, came back. People said he didn't look the same when actually – the situation around him changed more than the player. Because Nick saw the same things I saw. I know uh, Jay Moyer, I think, had a, a similar point of view. you know. And when I watched Ross, I, I couldn't tell the difference. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a difference. You know, maybe people were able to see that he had that fifth metatarsal fracture and that he wasn't quite as quick. But it's hard to see certain things like that. I mean, I I watched so many games of Nick Chubb to try and see a difference, and I didn't. All I saw was impressive acceleration um, that was still there. You know, still great movement ability, still great agility. So, you know, looking at Ross, I didn't see much of a difference. 
I would theorize that a lot of people tend to conflate results with the individual player that are results driven by factors outside the, the player's control. I think sometimes they can tend to do that and create a narrative that doesn't exist. Like, you know, Nick Chubb looked different and now he's all the way back. You know, or Le'Veon Bell looked different and then he lost weight. You know, I I think that's the easy way to go when I don't think that was really the case. I never thought that about any of those three. And then here's the other thing about Ross. There's the narrative that Ross was maybe never fast, never that explosive, but he's fast enough. But he's not a guy who can really take a top off the defense. Maybe that's true. But another theory is that we haven't seen Ross in two years essentially fully healthy. So if maybe he was not quite as fast as he he should have been on tape, it's because he was playing with a fifth metatarsal fracture, that long bone running from basically your pinky toe down your foot. Very painful injury. Got shot up with Toradol pretty much every week to play on it. It's a six to eight week recovery after surgery for a stress fracture, at least from the diagnosis that I've read about. I asked someone I know with some, with a great cross section of skills in football that includes injury and said, listen, let me run this by you. Justin, Justin Ross comes back from a difficult cervical spinal fusion surgery had lost a ton of weight, had to build that weight back up, regain the athletic ability that he inherently had to play foot just to play football. So he probably wasn't all the way back due to that to begin with. He might have been close, but not fully there. Meaning tenth of a second difference, maybe, is in terms of speed. He ran what a four five seven forty? And people were like, Yeah, see, he's just not that fast. Four five six forty. There it is. Four five six forty. Had to get back to a certain speed. Then he breaks the. Then he has the stress fracture. Plays on it all year. Probably did more damage to it. You know. Gets surgery on November eighteenth. So if there's a six to eight prognosis week prognosis for recovery after surgery. You kind of want to lean on eight weeks probably after he further, you know, did probably did a little bit more, put a little more stress in that stress fracture, you know, over the course of a season playing through it. So eight weeks from that point is mid-January. The number of weeks between mid-January and the first week of March for the combine, six weeks. So Justin Ross had six weeks after likely being immobilized for six weeks, for eight weeks. Probably was mobilized for six to eight weeks. I Let's say eight weeks. Probably very limited workouts that he could do. Certainly wasn't running. That's for sure. Had six to eight weeks to prepare for the combine. Whereas most players who were healthy enough and played a full season and didn't come back from a surgery that they had to gain a shit ton of weight to get back and get back to athletic condition just to play, 
they had at least 10 to 12 weeks to prepare for the combine to hone their top speed to razor sharp, game the system, workout level. Justin Ross was just trying to get back probably to passable speed. So my theory is, and I ran this by the guy and he said, listen, I don't think he was anywhere close to 100% with just eight weeks to do that cutting and pounding of sprinting. So a less than 100% Justin Ross jumped a 31.5 vertical and ran a 4.5640, which is still starter tier for me. But if you cut a tenth of a second off that, or even maybe an eighth, eight tenths of a second off of that, or not eight tenths, but excuse me, eight one hundredths of a second off of that, you're still probably looking at elite or near elite speed. And you could probably add some inches to the to the jumping because again, that explosive cut off of your foot, yeah, might not be back. You know, especially just building, and it's not even just the foot, it's building your body back up again after being immobilized for that period, at least building your legs back up. I would not be shocked if the team that drafts Justin Ross says he's a lot more explosive in training camp than what we saw at Clemson. Or by the end of this season, (laughs) that's the case. This guy could be the top receiver in this class and might have been on my board if if not for the injury, you know, as a result, you know, in terms of the times and how that factors in. So hidden hidden value there. Pimpleton, we talked about him, the way he can catch and run in the right system. You know, get that woodhead type action. Maybe a little Darren Sproles to his game. Maybe. I'm using my imagination a little bit more there, but at least as a slot receiver. But if they can use him as a little bit as a runner, you know, I think, you know, Chris Chris Olave, when you look at him, he can play all three positions, I bet. And if they use him a lot in the slot and kind of use him inside, outside, and he can become a primary guy, that's there. Same with with Drake London. You know, he's kind of that Juju Smith-Schuster type in this class where he's not super fast, but he's big, he's strong, he runs good routes, he wins the ball, he can run after the catch, and he's fast enough to play outside. And he has enough skills to win outside. And you can use him the matchup inside-outside. Man, you know, you you might you might love the Garrett Wilsons of this class. You might love the Jalen, you know, the Jahan Dotsons, who I I think is very good, or the George Pickens, who seems fast enough. But you want solid, safe ability, who's going to get a lot of targets. Give me Drake London. I'll tell you that much. Another hidden value guy is Dalen Baldwin. Michigan, formerly of Jack, um, where was he at? He was an eight, at an HBCU. I think it was Jackson State. And then before that, Morgan State. Kind of went up a couple, a, a few times, a double transfer. 
to double transfer upward like that in the span of your career. That should tell you a little bit about work ethic and desire and making smart decisions to get there. This guy obviously came from nowhere relative to in football terms because I don't want to denigrate those programs. But, you know, went from a, a lower tier programs to Michigan. That tells you this guy's decision-making was wise, was smart, and there must be some hard work and skill put into that. And when I watched him, loved the skills. It's good size, 6'2", 219. You see him getting open a lot at the lower levels, but in Michigan, maybe not as much. His pro day workouts weren't all that great. 4'6", 40, 4.3920, 7.23, 3-cone drill. Neither of those were bad. 34.5 vertical, not bad. 16 reps. But what makes him so intriguing for me is that he had one year at Michigan. Okay, as Russ Landy talked about in one of our scout casts, Scott, Scott Talk casts, is that the thing about small school players is that they don't have the top-tier facilities due to the overwhelming alumni funding and state funding that you see that goes into athletic programs at state schools, at big-time Division I programs. And so you don't always get the best, you know, training and development resources that a Michigan or an LSU or a Georgia or Texas or Ohio State has. And so Baldwin didn't have that for all but one year of his career, I believe. And so one year, is one year going to make that much of a difference? I'm, I'm thinking maybe not. So the fact that you know, you know, he probably didn't run fast when he first got to school at Morgan State. He probably wasn't that athletic by Division One standards. And he's continued to develop his game. So if he can get to where he's gotten now, I wouldn't rule out the idea that he continues to grow and get faster, quicker, more explosive overall. And if that happens at 62219, we could look be looking at a at an outside receiver, a primary outside receiver one day. Because he has the skills elsewhere to develop in that path. If not, maybe he has enough to be a a, a good big slot receiver. You know, and if that happens. Still a win for him. So that's another guy I just find super intriguing. Some risk-reward there with him. And then there's guys with just developmental appeal that can they completely get there? Alec Pierce. I don't know if he's def- necessarily a developmental guy. I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think he's a, I think he's very skilled. Um, but, you know, is he maxed at... Is his skill set maxed? If it is... I still like him as a contributor, as a guy who you can put in a rotation and he'll probably give you even like, you know, value, a certain amount of value every week. 
but he might have wide receiver one upside or at least one B, kind of like Adam Thielen to Justin Jefferson or Justin Jefferson to Adam Thielen. He compares to Justin Jefferson to me in a lot of respects. He's not that far away as an athlete, that's for sure. 44140, 42820, 40.5 inches vertical, 6'3", 211 pounds. He's not quite as um, elusive as a runner, but he can do a lot for a team. Really like him. Christian Watson, you know, another one I like. Upside talent, you know, the transition to the NFL. Might take him a little bit of time. There's things to build on. I think he can add weight. He's 6'4", 208. He might be 6'4", 218, 6'4", 225 before it's all over with. And he's already shown power, burst, ability to win the ball in there. Very good vision in the open field as a runner. If you remember Javon Walker and the, the top season he had, I think there's a little Javon Walker going on with Christian Watson. We're going to see about that. Shakir, I've talked about him enough already. Erica Zukanma didn't have a particularly great combine, I suppose. Limited route tree at Texas Tech. But, you know, I like his physicality. I like how he tracks the ball. But the routes he does know how to run, he's good at. I think in a couple of years... You might have something there where you might get like a, a Josh Palmer type of player. And we'll see where Josh, or Josh Palmer, um, his uh, um, trajectory goes. But there might be something there. And then, you know, last but not least, Austin with that hidden game that we talked about. So, you know, that's the wide receiver class. A lot of upside there, but also lower floor. There's, there are more guys I'd love to talk about, but I've been close to an hour and a half at this point. You know, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you found it worthwhile. And uh, get the RSP. You know, it's the best thing I do by far in this space. You know, certainly not perfect with my evaluations, but what I my goal is to help you understand my process, help you understand what makes a process of evaluation um, complex, what these players have to offer, and all the different levers and mechanisms that can help or hurt their game so that you have an informed decision that you can make and you can have the details to look at that ring true when you see them on your waiver wire in fantasy two, three years from now when they're late round guys or guys who temporarily disappointed or guys who had early success but then start to falter because, well, teams start to catch up to what they can't do and exploit it. These are the types of things that the RSP will show you and has a track record of showing you. And the fact that you have a document with someone who's showing you how they're continuing to evolve and learn as an evaluator. And and listen, if you're there about results, I'll put it to you this way. You know, the fact that mine is one of the two most purchased draft guides by scouts, according to guys like Alex Brown, director of recruiting at SMU, who's 
over the years, been with three different Division One programs and met with lots of scouts weekly and gets to see what independent draft guides they look at and talk to them about it. He's the one who told me, you know, in addition to other people who tell me, you know, you know, I've seen Rick Spielman with your draft guide or I've seen so-and-so with your draft guide. So, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the greatest scout in the world. That's that's for sure. But I'm giving you giving you thoughtful content that will help you um, take action. You know, and I'm not afraid to look at things on a process that will have me different than groupthink. You know, so thanks again. Get it at mattwaldman.com. Enjoy your week. I got to make a mad dash to finish this tight end chapter. Have a good week.